Father, we thank you for today. We thank you for what you want to do in our hearts today. I pray that you would just continue uh, to move Holy Spirit through the word as we jump into Colossians. Lord, I thank you for what you've been uh, doing in our hearts already through worship. And we just right now open up our hearts and our minds to hear, to receive from you today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, good to see you today, church. Uh, I'm excited to continue to go through Colossians. Uh, as we get into today, I'll be preaching from Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 to 20. Uh, I'm calling it Jesus in all things. This is really where the title of our series from Colossians came from. This is the passage that really the book of Colossians hinges on. It's going to keep on referring to it. It's one of the most important uh, Christological uh passages in all of scripture. Uh, so read with me, and I was going to say it's one of my favorite passages in all of scripture, but uh, I know that everybody is getting on my case about all my favorite passages. So I will leave it as one of the most important passages in scripture. Uh, so read with me, Colossians chapter 1, uh, verses 15 to 20. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent, for in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. When I was in college at Baruch, we used to pray over our campus uh, regularly, every day. And one of the prayers that we would pray actually came out of this scripture. It was an application of this scripture, and we would say, uh, we would pray to God and say, Baruch was created by you, through you, and for you. And that's how we would pray over our campus. Since then, I've prayed about our community, Bay Ridge, about our city, New York City, about our country, America, about my family. And I have said those same words, that this was created by you, through you, and for you to Jesus. And... I've come back to this passage constantly uh, since I was a freshman in college, uh, like I said, to keep on praying and reminding myself how everything around us is for Jesus and by him. Uh, this is, like I said when we started, one of the most important Christological passages or understanding of Christ. This gives so much depth and knowledge and understanding about who Christ is, who is the Jesus that we worship. Um, and so that my hope for today is actually the same hope that Paul had when he wrote this poem uh, to the church in Colossae. My hope is that uh, it would expand our knowledge of God so that our thankfulness to Jesus would not be a theoretical thankfulness, but it would be a, a whole life, whole knowledge, understanding thankfulness, that it will inform our prayers and it would inform our posture towards Christ in our life. That as we increase in the knowledge of Jesus, as we read last week, that it will continually shape who we are. It will shape our prayer life and it will shape our life. 
And so I pray that this passage helps you fall even more deeply in love with Jesus, what he's done, and who he is. And we'll start off with the first verse, verse 15 in chapter 1, where Paul gives Jesus these titles. He says, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. In the Old Testament, Yahweh was very different from the other gods. All the other gods would have these huge statues erected of them in gold and wood uh, and metals. You can go to museums, you can uh, see them today. In fact, you can uh, still see it when you go into certain stores where you see the statue or the idol placed on the counter or on the shelf or in people's homes hanging on people's walls. All the other gods wanted images of them everywhere. They wanted people to worship their image. But Yahweh was always different because he always said that we didn't know what he looked like. In fact, one of the Ten Commandments said that we were not allowed to create a carved image of him because nobody had ever seen him. Nobody could behold his glory when Moses said he wanted to see him face to face. God told him he couldn't. We understand that if anybody saw God in his fullness, in his glory, that we would surely die. So it was understood in the Old Testament that if we saw God in our fallen state, in the place that once Adam and Eve sinned and we were disconnected and and sin took root in us that we would not be allowed to live. Kind of like if I showed you, I'd have to kill you sort of thing. And so then enters Jesus, who becomes the visible image of the invisible God, the human representation of the God-man who dwelt among us, the perfect image of the previously in human power, unimageable God the Father. The image we are constantly being crafted into by the Holy Spirit to image the Father who is in heaven. Jesus then becomes the physical, visible representation of the invisible, immaterial God that we can never see or touch or feel. And Paul gives this visible image of the invisible a title. And that title that he gives him is Firstborn. Firstborn was the title that was given to the one in the family who was preeminent. It was the one that was the one who is above or in charge of the family. When it says firstborn here, this is not delineating a starting point for Jesus. It is not saying that he's a created being. In fact, as we read the whole poem and we read everything that Paul is saying in Colossians, it's impossible that he means that from here. Firstborn was the title given to Jesus. That meant you, he was above. He is the one who is in charge of all creation. It was not saying that this was the beginning for him. And so to prove his preeminence, Paul then takes these titles and explains them to them. See, this, this understanding of, of calling Jesus the firstborn, because as, as we think of it today, has been misunderstood. And there's actually been uh, false theologies and even religions built around false understanding of this. You have to think of it like this. If you think of the time that Jesus lived in with Caesar Augustus, 
Caesar Augustus was the first true emperor of Rome, and he was the firstborn of Julius Caesar. He was the adopted firstborn, but Caesar Augustus actually was not uh, one of Julius Caesar's children. What happened when Julius Caesar uh, knew that he needed an heir, the heir uh, to all of his property, the one that would rule over his home, all the things that he had accumulated as he did what he did to take over the Roman Empire, he then adopted Caesar Augustus as his firstborn. This was the title given to Augustus to show that he was the one that ruled over all the things that Julius Caesar had accumulated. And so Paul gives this title to Jesus so that he can then explain to prove the preeminence of Jesus, explain who Jesus was in the world. In verse 16, we see this, Paul says, For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. So in the world that we live in, we do not live in this world of yin and yang or, or, or chaos and order. Uh, the world was not created in this kind of dualistic understanding of creation. And the dualistic understanding of creation is that there is chaos, right? There is order. And between them, there always must be an equal balance and scale for there to be peace. Kind of, this is the order of the world. And a lot of uh, a lot of uh, religions, a, a lot of philosophies uh, talk about this kind of dualistic understanding of the world that you need you know, the right amount of chaos on this side, the right amount of order on this side, and that's what brings equilibrium to the world. If, if any of you have watched Avatar, uh, you'll see this theology preeminent in, in that show that uh, you have, right, you, you have the avatar who is supposed to bring balance uh, between these two worlds. And a lot of Christians understand the world in this way, that there is a dark power, Satan, who props himself up against God, and that there is the good power, God, and that there is this kind of equal and unending war that will go on between them, and we're in this tug of war with Satan, but the truth here that we are learning about, that we learn about Jesus, that we learn about creation, is that everything in Scripture we read in Genesis chapter 1 was created and labeled good. There was not anything that was labeled chaos. There was not anything that was labeled bad. And all of the world, all of creation, visible and invisible, whether on heaven or on earth, all of it came by Jesus through Jesus and for Jesus, by him, through him, and for him. Genesis 1 says that it was the spoken word that, was cre that created all that we have. John 1 calls Jesus the word of God. Colossians 1 explains that it was Jesus at the beginning. It was by him, through him, and for him that all of this was created. This is not a dualistic creation that we live in. We're not living in a world that there is equal and unending power struggle and balancing going on between good and evil. No, at the very onset of creation, it was all created by God. It was all created by Jesus, through Jesus, and for Jesus. 
It was not for Israel, which they were thinking at this time. It was not for your good pleasure or my good pleasure. It was not for me and you to thrive. It was for Jesus's good pleasure. It was for Jesus. Everything, heaven, earth, visible and invisible, all of it, everything in it. Even the thrones, dominions, rulers, and authorities, Paul says. This is not physical, what Paul is talking about. This is not talking about kings and presidents and prime ministers and, and eminencies and, and your grace and all that. No, it's, he's not talking about that. When he says the, the thrones, dominions, rulers, and authorities, he is, he is going through the spiritual realm food chain, essentially. He, he is going from the lowest spiritual beings to the highest of host spiritual beings, the rebellious low spiritual beings, even to the top rebellious spiritual being, Satan, all of it, everything, when it was created, was created good. And it was created by him. It was created through him. And it was created for him. That everything that we see, even the most powerful dark agents, all of them are only here because they were created by, through, and for him. And so then Paul transitions here. This is the first part of the poem talks about Jesus's title and preeminence over all creation, over the invisible, over the visible, over all the world, the things that we see, the intangibles and the tangibles, everything, how he is preeminent, that it came about for him, through him, by him. And then he transitions this. He gives his first transitional statement in verse 17. And, and then that second transitional in 18, he says, and he is before all things and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. So what he's saying, he's saying, Satan, the pagan gods of Jupiter and Zeus and all of the pantheons, the Jewish Torah, whatever it is that tries to prop itself up as an equal to Jesus, falls flat. Nothing can actually stand on the same pedestal with Jesus and look him in the eye and say, we are on equal footing, that when we fight, this is going to be a fair fight. Paul's saying, no, this is, this is not a fair fight. This is not one entity against another entity, and we are wondering, biting our nails, who is going to win? That's not what's going on here. Paul is, is making a clear statement that he is above all things, and in him all things hold together. How can anything claim supremacy when the only reason it holds together is because of Jesus? See, all of the spiritual beings in the world, all the tangibles, your house, the, the things that you enjoy, our life, our air, the trees, nature, the mountains, all of these things, nothing should be worshipped above Jesus. When we worship nature, when we worship the sun, the moon, and the skies, when we worship the gods, if we worship Satan, when we worship entertainment, when we worship sex, all of these things that we worship, and we put it on a pedestal and we say it's above Jesus, none of those things can hold weight against Jesus. 
because the only reason why those things exist is because Jesus holds those things together. Without Jesus, the world around us disintegrates. See, worshiping nature doesn't make sense because Jesus is what holds nature together. Worship the creator, not the creation, scripture says. See, it never made sense in the Old Testament. They would mock the other religions that would worship the wooden idols or the golden idols because they would say, you make those things with your own hands. How do you worship something that you have made with your own hands? It doesn't make sense. Paul is giving the understanding that Jesus is before all things. There is no equal and opposite opposing force of Jesus that when they come and clash together, we wonder who is going to win this. No, because of Jesus, all things hold together. If Jesus does not allow it to stay together, then it does not exist. Simple, plain fact. And so Jesus is preeminent. He is what Paul says, this is his transition out of, he is the firstborn of all creation. That's what this means, that he is above everything. And because of him, everything holds together. So nothing in that essence can stand against him. Nothing can try to prop itself up to claim to be his equal. It is impossible. And so Paul moves from this first stanza of his poem to the second with this transitional statement, and and he is the head of the body, the church. What is the head of a body? The, The body is controlled by the head. There is no question then, Paul saying here, that Jesus is the head of the church. He is the head of the universal church, all of the church globally. He is the head of this church, Zion. He is the head of the other church down the block. He is the head of the church. There is no pastor that's the head of the church. There's no bishop that's the head of the church. There is no pope that is the head of the church. There is one head of the church, and that is Jesus. Jesus and Jesus alone. It is not what we will. We don't do what we want to do. The church doesn't come up with cool programs and things that we think, oh yeah, this would be nice. No, it is the will of God. It is Jesus's will that we follow and and we do it in complete obedience to him. And that's what makes me part of the body, right? My arms right now, they are moving where my mind, where my head is telling them to move. They have no choice. They have no control over what they are going to do. Paul says that he used to be a slave of sin. Now he is a slave of righteousness. When Jesus is truly the head, our will, our desire, our thoughts, our understanding, all of those things die. What we want dies, our our specialness in our head, all of these things, they die. And there's one thing now that we bow to the command of, and that is the head of the church, the head of the body, Jesus. Just like our body parts have no choice but to comply with what our mind tells them to do, so does the true people of God have no choice but to comply with the head, with Jesus, with Christ. 
And so Paul uses this to transition then to his next stanza where he gives Jesus more titles. He gives the title to Christ in the rest of verse 18. He says, he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. See, what, G, what Paul was talking about in this first part of the poem, this first stanza, is he gives Jesus titles over creation, whether visible or invisible, so that we know that when we understand Jesus, that Jesus is the head of it all. Jesus is preeminent in it all. Jesus is, is on top of it all. There is nothing that can come at equilibrium with Jesus. But then Paul transitions from our understanding of the world to then our understanding of the church. And he throws out this word again, the firstborn. He is the firstborn of all the church, of all the family. He is preeminent. He is in charge. The inheritance was given to him. So the church led by Jesus it was God's ultimate plan and response to the fallen world. And God's ultimate response to a fallen world, God's ultimate response to sin is Jesus. And it is Jesus as the head of it. And Jesus leads the movement, leads the church, leads the body, leads the family that then is the response in this world, the kingdom of God, to the fallenness, to the sinful nature. Creation's original intent in Christ burst forth back into the world on Resurrection Sunday. And Jesus was the start of that. We are all baptized into that, into his death and resurrection, taking on the inheritance of the firstborn of Jesus, reclaiming this world by spreading the good news of a great king. Right, Jesus is preeminent in God's plan to bring creation in back under subjection into the kingdom that all that has rebelled, that all has gone astray, that now Jesus is the, the firstborn of the new creation. He is the beginning that in his crucifixion, in his resurrection on that day, bursts forth back into the world. God's restorative plan, the kingdom of heaven back on earth. And so the rest of the poem, just like before when Paul gave the titles, explains the titles further. In verses 19 and 20, it says this. For in him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Here we have those three things again, in him, through him, to him, for him, in him, through him, to him, in him, through him, to him. That it's not just the world that was created in him and through him and for him, but it is the church, the body that is created in him and through him and for him that we cannot ever get this misunderstood of our place and our, our understanding of the kingdom of God and who is the head and why is it here. How does Jesus have the title that he has? 
about being the head of the church. Paul gives us that explanation here, how he can do the things that he does. It says that in him dwells the fullness of God. He is the God-man that dwelt among us. Through him, we are reconciled to God. He is the only way to heaven. For him, we are reconciled. This is all for him. I've often asked God, why me? I don't deserve it. And you know what? It's not because of me. It's through him, not through my works, not through my doing, not through who I am, not through what I have done, not through some greatness of my own. It's through him and for him. It's for the glory of God. It's not for my glory. It's not for my kingdom. It's not for my pleasure. It's not for my goodness. No, it is for him. See, we have to elevate our understanding of Jesus and constantly rip out and, and put the understanding of the world, kind of like when they sift gold. If you've ever seen that process, all the silt and the mud and the murk, it goes through the sifting process. And what's left is the gold. When we, when we come to know Jesus, and we, what happens is our life is thrown on the sifting pot. And we have to sift out and shake out all the thoughts, all the, the mud, the dirt, and the, the, the wrong theology of the world. See, the world will tell us it's for me that God does this. It's for my delight. It's for my pleasures because I'm so special. The world will say it's through me. It's through my strength, my intellect, my job, my resume, my degrees, my, uh, my, all the things I have accumulated, my bank account. It is, it is through my good works. And, and the world will say, it is, it is in me that all these things have come to pass. But Paul is chopping that theology down and he is saying, no, get it straight. It is only one person that matters in this equation. It is in him, through him, and for him. It is in him, through him, and for him. That is why the world exists. That is why the church exists. That is why we get the pleasure of being in his presence for the glory of God. And let me tell you that he is reconciling all things, not just his church. Paul says here, he ends this poem with this, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Right? In, in verse 20, it says, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the, by the blood of his cross. Everything will be put back in order by him. There will not be this dualistic struggle where this equal but opposite force, this chaos and order, this good and evil, this yin and this yang constantly warring for eternity, for a millennia. No, he will reconcile all things to himself. It has been happening. It is happening now. And it will happen in its fullness in the future Right, that last line where it says, making peace by the blood of his cross. This peace 
that Paul uses, this word here, peace, is not a willing peace. It is, it is another word of saying this is it is a pacification. It is the peace of the Roman Empire where when they brought peace to the world, what they did was they conquered the world and they pacified the barbarian tribes. They pacified the East. They pacified North Africa. What they did was their armies went out and they brought the world in subjection, submission to the king, to the emperor. So when it says that he is making peace by the blood of his cross, that means that the cross and the blood that was shed on it was the thing that conquered all of the sin, all death, and that through it we have victory. That victory has been given to Jesus. The moment that his blood was shed on the cross, that the cross is the avenue of victory, that spells out destruction to every throne, ruler, dominion, and authority on the earth. Rebellious dominions and the host in heavens, all of it comes under subjection of Jesus. By the blood of his cross, they are defeated. C.S. Lewis once said this, there is no neutral ground in the universe. Every square inch, every split second is claimed by God and counterclaimed by Satan. This is war. Peace will come by the continuing invasion of the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, by a great God who sent his perfect son. Everything will be reconciled to him. See, what, what Paul wants the church in Colossae to understand is that he is giving thanksgiving and he wants them to have this, this life of thanksgiving to grow in the knowledge of God so that this new, budding, immature church can grow in their maturity in Christ, grow in their knowledge of God, grow in their understanding of the kingdom of God, of the church of God, and, and what their place is in that. And so he gives us them this beautiful poem, this this him of who Jesus is. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross." We don't just serve one deity of many. We don't serve a weak God. We don't serve somebody that can be characterized as nature or the sun, the moon, and the stars or creation itself. No, we serve the creator who holds everything in the palm of his hands that the only reason why we wake up in the morning and have breath is because of him. The only reason why the structure of the universe is held, why the planets revolve around the sun, why the 
stars stay in the sky is because of Jesus. The reason why I have breath is because I am in him, because it is through him, and because it is for him. Too often we lose out on thanksgiving and we lose out in gratitude and thankfulness towards God and contentedness in the world because our theology shifts from him in all things to me in everything. It shifts from him and through him, by him and for him to I want this thing for that thing through this thing. Paul is making sure this church remembers and never forgets that every single day we have something to thank God for. Every single day when we pray to God that we remember who we are praying, why we are praying, for what reason we are praying. When we come to Jesus that we have an endless supply of things to thank him for. We have an endless supply of things to come to the majesty of God about to say that you are beyond my comprehension. To realize who we serve is not one of two, is not one of many. He is one of one. And in him all creation was created. And in him all creation will be reconciled back to him. This was never a game of chess where two people were duking it out to see who wins. God created a good earth. Sin entered it and then God established that sin will be destroyed in it and would not win, and that there would be a new heavens and a new earth where sin did not exist. And all of this was by Jesus, through Jesus, and for Jesus. Pray with me. Father, I pray that you would help us to never forget who we worship, what we are thankful for, and the power that Jesus holds. Lord, I pray that you would elevate our theology today, of who Jesus is. Elevate our understanding of the Son. Elevate, God, who we know you to be. That we would understand why there is only one way to heaven. That no one else holds the power. This was made for no one else. This is for no one else. This is through no one else. But that, Father, that you are the firstborn of all creation, that Jesus, you are the firstborn from the dead. You are the beginning. And we worship a great God who sent a great son to establish the great kingdom on earth. And that we get to share this good news Today we may share it with ourselves. Tomorrow we can share it with our friends at work, with our house churches, in our discussions, with our family. But Lord, help us to never forget who Jesus is, what he has done, what he is doing, and what we have been created for. And in the mighty name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.